You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. So whether the market is doing gangbusters or looking more like a dumpster fire, a good, well-rounded stock portfolio is necessary for any investor. Robinhood is a platform that aims to democratize finance for everybody. Robinhood believes everyone should have access to financial markets, so what they did was they built their system from the ground up to make investing friendly, approachable, and understandable for newcomers and experts alike. What I love about Robinhood is that you don't need an account minimum to start. There are zero fees for trading, and you can even purchase cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Join today by tapping the link in the show notes to get a free stock. It's just like that. I mean, it's just free, just for signing up. And this free stock can be anything from Sirius XM to Apple or any of the other thousands of other publicly traded companies just like that. You've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. So go get your free stock today by checking out that Robinhood link in the show notes today. Whether you're looking for a comedic retelling of the history of the modern libertarian movement or a dark comedy about the seedy world of American politics, my books, Stay Away from the Libertarians, as well as How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, have been entertaining thousands of readers throughout the world since 2018. Whether you're looking for the next great book on your reading list or considering a funny and captivating book for the politico or history nut in your life, you can grab a copy of either Stay Away from the Libertarians, or How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship today on either Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. Amazon links for the print and ebook editions of both books are available in the show notes. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's been an uh, interesting year to say the least. Remember a few months ago when we had to worry about uh, toilet paper shortages and then it was the meat shortages and then it was the murder hornets and then people said that having sex could spread more corona so then couples were staying away from each other and then Joe Exotic hit Netflix and... Um, now you know cities are burning down. It's been uh, it's been interesting. It's like the narration of the story of 2020 has been voiced by uh, the dude who played the parrot from Aladdin, and oh, the whole thing is directed by Michael Bay. It's the whole planes, trains, and automobiles type of Avengers Endgame crossover. For me, go ahead and throw in all the pop culture references to say that things are weird, things are strange. And if we're doing one thing now that we may not have traditionally done, it's as uh, my good friend Chris Spangle has coined it, this is the end of the age of comfort. And we're having to talk about a lot of different things. Recently, I was on a few programs discussing my experience as a multiracial American. For those of you that don't know, it's not often you have someone with the middle name William sandwiched in between Remso and Martinez. And it's been quite odd. Um, my entire life has been, you know, really the story of multiple cultures, multiple ethnicities coming together to go ahead and create my family. And watching what is going on in America now, it's it's quite strange because now you're seeing people who wouldn't typically want to talk about this 
changing their tune. You're seeing people actually begin to really discuss what is it like to live in another person's shoes. It often seems that while a lot of people may still get stuck in a lot of the political ruts they do when it comes to their dialogue and conversations, now people, even more so than when the Black Lives Matter movement started four years ago, out of the um, flames of the Ferguson riots and the death of multiple black men at the hands of police. Now it seems that people really want to understand what's going on to hopefully create a better future for ourselves and our post and our prosperity. I can't even talk today. Our posterity. One of those crazy ACT SAT words that I should probably learn to have pronounced by now, but where, where do you go for good information about this topic and where can we actually start the conversations? Well, if you're like me, you like to actually, you know, put an objective foot forward and experiment with certain things, try and really understand from an objective lens, how we really view each other. Uh, recently, good friend of the show, Jen Sidorova, one of my favorite young voices contributors and the host of think tankers on YouTube, uh, did a video talking about three very important, experiments in terms of how we view race in America on her channel. I'm going to go ahead and link to that video in the show notes, but you've heard enough of me talking. I want to talk to her about this. Jen, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm good to be here. So I, I've got to ask when people are talking about, you know, all, everything that has to do with racial confusion and racial inequality in America, I've I've never heard anyone bring up the three experiments you mentioned in your episode. And as I watched it, it was just fascinating to see how people of all races, predominantly um, white individuals and African-American individuals, it was just so interesting to see them partake in these three different experiments. I never learned about them in school. I took enough psychology classes. None of them were ever brought up. What made you jump into this and what did you discover as you were learning about these three different experiments to see how we view each other in terms of race in the United States? So my training and my, my, my work as an early, as a young professional, kind of early in my career, I, um, I went to Stony Brook. Um, I did a master's in economics there, but then I did a master's in political science, and that program is known for its political psychology, um, for, for its political psychology field. And um, I was exposed to a lot of research that has to deal with um, race and prejudice um, as part of uh, their political psychology course. Um, so what made me talk about these three particular experiments was that it was just instinct, instinctively almost that when I, I saw what's going on in the country, I thought, how can I, how can I as a social scientist contribute? And I thought, well, I know about these findings that we've had in political psychology and just in political science for so long that nobody talked about. And most of the rhetoric that I see in the media is pretty basic. It mostly just talks about um, conservatives as people who don't like welfare. And um, since the majority of welfare recipients are black in this country, it's, it's been almost, almost, it's almost like an equality sign has been drawn between conservatives and prejudice and racial prejudice. 
And when it comes to liberals, it's in the other on the other side again. When it comes to talking, when it comes to the conversations in the media, they're mostly um, liberals are mostly associated with being um, accepting of welfare programs, um, and as a result, they're seen as um, people who are less prejudiced. But what these experiments and in other research that I know in political psychology tells us is that it doesn't really matter. Um, although different uh, kind of parts of the brain are activated when we're exposed to um, to the stimulus, to the racial stimulus, um, it doesn't matter whether we are conservative or liberal. Um, pretty much everyone is prejudiced in their own way. It just depends on the circumstances that um, the person is at the moment. Yeah, and I, I don't see... I mean, prejudice is a word that I think everyone kind of understands, but we don't seem to really look into it. I I, I mean, individuals are prejudiced against other people beyond just race. If we're looking at people that are applying for a job, we're going to be prejudicial based off their appearance. Are we going to want to talk to the person that showed up with their you know, pants below their waist and they haven't gotten a haircut and they smell like cigarette smoke, or are we going to go for the person who's wearing a suit and a tie and looks prepared for the job? We're making instinctive judgments based off the outward appearance of people. If we're on the street and we're going to ask somebody for direction somewhere, are we going to talk to the shirtless person, you know, sitting down on the sidewalk with a ton of tattoos, or are we going to go talk to the police officer? Most people are going to go ask the cop. So, we make these judgments. And when I try and tell this to some of my friends who get a little bit more heated on this issue, I try and, you know, break it down to the point where, listen, we all have our own inherent prejudices. Just because of that, that does not make you a terrible person. But it's something that's kind of just grounded in how you react towards things in the world. Some people take it beyond that, and then they become you know, openly hateful or openly racist or, you know, incredibly unbendingly prejudiced. But overall, there are things that we can learn about ourselves to see how we interact with those around us. Would you say that's kind of accurate? So um, there's definitely two different things. It's open, open prejudice and what we call in political sciences, old fashioned racism. And then what is another thing is an implicit bias and um, open prejudice, open old fashioned racism it would be something that you kind of talked about. If we see two people walking in the street, we would automatically, um, well, we would just not come to the black person. If we see a black and the white person, we would go to uh, the white person um, because we would think they're less, they would not show any, any any aggression towards us. We just think they're more safe. And then implicit prejudice is something that we we exhibit while we have no control over. Um, for instance, if we have two candidates for work and they have absolutely the same skills and we uh, just see their pictures in their resume uh, and we just take the white uh, and we go to the white person, that would be something like that. Because then um, there's literally nothing that changes the circumstances. It's just the color of the skin. And when it comes to implicit prejudice, um, and that's something that 
if if you know old fashioned racism we would see and we as people we would um you know try to do actions that are against it there's nothing there's literally nothing we can do against implicit prejudice um <clears throat> because it's hidden and um so I'm talking in, in my video, I'm talking about on one of those experiments, the implicit association test. It kind of tells you, and then everyone can go into onto the website and take the test, and it tells you how biased you actually are. And um, when it comes to implicit prejudice, I, there's one other experiment that I don't talk, don't talk about in the video, but um, I recently came across that. And um, in that experiment, um, Black and white respondents, non-conservative whites mostly, were presented with political speeches of two candidates. Um, and there was a black uh, and a white British politician. Um, and then, so, and then after the, after that stimulus, the respondents were asked to evaluate the candidates on a couple of um, parameters. And so, whereas when they evaluated those two people, on their competence, on their kind of favorability, um, all people were, they were more favorable towards the black person. Mm -hmm. And then when they then were asked, how do you evaluate that person based on intelligence? They were more, bi were more preferable towards the white person. So what inherently what that means is that although non-conservative whites could be prejudiced towards blacks, they will not openly reveal it on something like uh, qualifications. And so they might show political support for a, a candidate of color or a black candidate, but inherently they don't actually support it. It's just almost like overcompensation. And what it leads to is that although in the moment they might reveal support for the candidate, they don't actually support them honestly. And if they go into the voting booth, we don't know what's going to happen there. They might reveal their true preferences that we're not going to control for. And when it comes to experiments uh, in political science and in psychology, a lot of it has also has to deal with with revealed preferences. And although people know, all the respondents know that they're not uh, that their responses are anonymous. They never truly believe that. So they end up kind of biasing their response because they think, oh, what if somebody knows that I'm responding and they know that I'm prejudiced against people, black people? I don't know. I don't want that. So that's another kind of caveat that uh, we, have, we have to deal with in, in social sciences. Yeah. And I mean, you, you mentioned how people are willing to overcompensate on something in order to make it seem like they're not for something else. It's a catch-22. And I saw this with uh, the 2016 election, I was running phone banks for a Republican candidate. And we would have to include questions about Donald Trump as well. And what we saw was a massive difference between the registered voters we would call in terms of how they would respond to us versus how they actually voted. If I could predict the outcome of our district and it, where our state would go based off the survey results, I would have thought that the Democrats would have not only won our congressional district, but a majority of people were voting for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But then when we look at what the actual results were, not only did the Republican win, but he won with a large majority. And Hillary Clinton, though she won the state of Virginia, she did not win by the overwhelming margin that we thought. And when we were talking to people afterwards, we saw that a large majority of individuals that we surveyed 
were worried that they that their data or their information would show how they actually thought about something like they would be publicly shamed for who they voted for who they didn't vote for and it's it's always interesting to see that because it's almost like people are willing to almost die on the sword of what they think is the correct stance to take publicly versus what they actually want to do, which is why we see this disparity that you mentioned. They might say one thing in public, but then when they go behind the curtain to go cast their vote, it's something completely different. Um, I want to go ahead and run through the three experiments that you mentioned in your video. They're incredibly fascinating. And folks, I'm going to go ahead and link to the video and everything else that Jen and I discuss in the show notes. So go ahead and check those after this episode if you want to see the full video yourself and maybe take some of the tests and surveys that we mentioned. The first experiment you mentioned, this is the one that I had to go back and watch several times because this, this actually hit me somewhat personally, and this is the doll experiment. Can you explain that? Sure, that's a pretty simple experiment, but very, very fascinating for the time. It um, took place in the 40s and the 50s when uh, two black researchers um, were trying to contribute to uh, ending the segregation. And uh, one of the points that they were trying to make is that the self-esteem of black kids is suffering because of segregation. Uh, and I guess that's what motivated them. And uh, what they did was they went to kin kindergarten and they showed uh, little kids, a little black kids, they showed them, they basically gave them a choice between two dolls. And one of them was a black doll and another one was a white doll. And they asked them to pick a doll that they liked. And then there were a bunch of other questions like which doll do you think is the nice doll? Which do you uh, doll do you think is the evil doll? And they found out that most black kids were choosing the white doll. They thought the white doll was the pretty one, the nice one, and the black doll was the evil one. And so they concluded that that must be proof uh, that uh, black kids do indeed suffer um, some sort of self-hatred and, um, and uh, self-esteem issues. Um, and that experiment, there were replications of that experiment pretty much led to similar or same conclusions. Uh, the only problem with the original experiment was that they didn't control for socioeconomic variables like the age of the kids or their uh, economic status. Uh, but uh, yeah, overall, from a standpoint of science, social science is a very, very innovative experience because you don't ask the person how do they feel about themselves or anything because the person might try to hide and kids are too young for that. Mm -hmm. And you just give them this sort of stimulus um, that, um, that indirect way of um, controlling for how do they feel about themselves. And I mean, it was, there, there's something heartbreaking when people watch this video because you're seeing them ask questions like, which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the pretty doll? And you always see these young black kids, they're constantly pointing to the white doll. This, and I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, Hollywood and the media in in the other experiments. But I mean, this is one that I I have seen from children. And I even remember seeing this uh, when I was a child. It was, uh, often I get criticized by conservatives for this. I consider myself a very conservative individual, but this is one criticism I get. I'm When they change the race of characters in movies or they make a black character or a character a different gender, it, often doesn't bother me because I understand the need to see yourself represented 
in the media or in the different, you know, public outlets that you would expect anyone to want to be seen in. And it always bothered me coming from a Latino background. You never see Latinos predominantly in a positive light on either the media or coming from popular culture, movies and TV. Um, I, one of my favorite actors right now is Oscar Isaacson, who played Poe Dameron in the recent Star Wars films. And it's because he's one of the first Latino actors. He's, he's from Guatemala originally. Who He didn't have to play a, a gangbanger or an immigrant in order to build up his film reputation before he could finally be the hero in a film. Um, there have been many black actors, such as Jamie Foxx, who said, you know, if you want to be in a good movie as a black actor, you can go ahead and be the main character in that. But if you want to win an Oscar, you have to be a black actor who plays a slave. And when I heard that, it, it really did kind of touch me in a way because it's like, this is how we see ourselves. And when you're so constantly inundated with this type of propaganda in a way, whether it's implicit or it's done unintentionally, you know, we, we see ourselves based off how others are viewing us in these grand forms. And to see children in this somewhat self-hating way, it, it, it bothered me in a way I didn't see it coming. What was your initial reaction when you saw this? Well, I think it was similar to yours. Uh, it made me think about other things like uh, what about my own nationality? I'm obviously Russian, and I do um, I do see a lot of negative portrayal of Russians in the media. Now, I don't necessarily encounter racial prejudice because um, you can see from me that I'm Russian, right? You can't you don't make this automatic judgment that's being made uh, on people of color, obviously. Uh, but again, it kind of speaks to the overall point that what is the way uh, that the media, that maybe you and me or Hollywood or anyone, any one of us in the media, how can we uh, contribute to this change that people, you know, not see role models like they are. Um, and at the same time, so they don't develop this self-hatred um, feeling and at the same time when it comes to Hollywood and as someone who is part of the industry um, I could speak to that too it sometimes could be hard for a movie producer or a director to kind of put these two notions uh, the race or gender and then the the message that the character is bringing because it kind of adds another layer of complexity and for a viewer, it could be cognitively more complex to perceive these two layers, uh, just because historically we've been so primed to, um, everything is white, right? All the Disney characters are white. Um, all the commercials we grew up are white. So, uh, but I do believe that uh, adding diversity gradually could lead to that. And we do have, uh, we do have uh, actually uh, such results in social science and in political political science that uh, once more diversity is introduced into the the environment of a person, they do perceive uh, the world as multidimensional, and they do perceive uh, diversity of skin as something of a norm. 
And we also, when it comes to experiments and other findings in political science, um, the more multiracial, the more diverse the environment of the person is, we do see that correlation with overall openness to experience, openness to um, communicate with other races um, and having friends among uh, people of different color. So um, we do have hope and we do have a lot of um, experiments that support that. Definitely. Um, the second experiment is something we, we touched on a little bit earlier, but we didn't go into depth with. This is the, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the implicit bias experiment? The welfare queen experiment. Yes. Yes. Can you explain that? Sure. So the welfare queen is kind of a composite image, a composite character that was used um, to characterize a person who's taking advantage of the welfare system. So they might they might be able to work, but they're just collecting uh, collecting welfare practically. And um, so the way that uh, the researchers kind of introduced race into that experiment was that they had two stories about welfare recipients, and they manipulated the race. In one case, it was a woman who was white, and in another case, it was a woman who was black. And um, as the main character of the story, of right. story in welfare, and in the third, in the third kind of group, um, the respondents saw just the welfare story without any any person showing up in a picture, and in the fourth group, it was just a random story it had nothing to do with welfare. So there were four groups of people, and each group had a different prime, and then after that, they were all asked the same questions, and. Um, and they do find that people who did see, um, who did watch the welfare story with a black woman were overall uh, more negative towards uh, welfare. And um, on the, the other kind of, and that's kind of something that we kind of would expect just based on the other findings in political and social science, as social scientists, we would expect that finding. Um, I think what was interesting to me is that those those respondents who um, do have the most liberal views, um, but watch the white woman story. So uh, the welfare recipient was portrayed in white as a white woman in their story. At the end of the day, when they were asked questions uh, after the experiment, they were even more negative towards blacks. And they were that, not, yeah, they yeah were that that did not surprise me as much as I thought it was going to be because the one of the biggest changes in my life was when I moved from Virginia down deep south into the black belts of Al, of Alabama, right outside of Selma. And one of the things that I kind of grew up not really, I, I don't know if this was a, a stereotype or a prejudice, but it, it often seems like, and and journalists such as uh, Charlie LaDuff uh, from Fox News and previously New York Times, he discussed this in both of his books, uh, Detroit and um, Us Guys. But I mean, the idea of white poverty in America. And this is one reason why Andrew Yang was often criticized because he had a large number of you know, single white men who live below the poverty line supporting his campaign as he talked about automation and labor laws and things like that. Um, it's because, you know, often when we think of white people who are poor, 
and I hear this primarily from my white friends, it's because they did something wrong or they chose not to be productive or they had a criminal past or something. It almost seems like if you're white and you're poor, it's always your fault. And then when I discuss this really kind of the same topic with people and I bring up, you know, the fact that you have a, you have a large number, an unhealthy number of African-Americans who are on the same welfare programs as these poor white people are, it's, well, they're disadvantaged. It's because they're victims of circumstance. It seems like they, there's almost no reason other than it's completely your fault if you're white and you're poor and it's not your fault if you're black and you're poor on your and you're on welfare. And I think both of those are very unhealthy assumptions for both of it. Um, I mean, I, I've seen this growing up, uh, you know, with a Latino name. My, my mom's family is Korean. My dad's family is Puerto Rican. When I lived in Texas and I went to school, it often shocked the teachers, the, the white teachers, that I was, A, not living in a trailer park. Two, I was an American citizen. Three, I spoke English. And four, both my parents were still together. It often seems like we're, we're quick to apply blame to one group of people blanketly, and then we're going to go ahead and provide the same yet different blanket presuppositions about another group of people. I, it's, it's always fascinated me how that works. And that kind of reminds me of another experiment and another study that's one of the seminal studies in political psychology is that when uh, they looked at kind of attitudes towards welfare in Europe and in the United States and the causes for such attitudes, they found, and the reason for them doing that, their motivation was to find out why, uh, why, do, why do we in the United States do not have the same welfare system as in Europe. And so um, when they looked at um, what Europeans versus Americans think of poor people, they found that Europeans mostly think that poor people are unfortunate and disadvantaged. It's just bad luck. Uh, whereas Americans perceive um, poor people as lazy. Um, they think they're just not work, working hard enough. And it, yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a very... Uh, that's a very American thing. We're a culture of, you know, at the end of the day, I think we'll always be a right of center culture where we're rugged individualists. We believe that in this land of opportunity, if you're not doing well, it's your fault. And that's something I haven't seen when I've been to other countries. I lived in Australia for a few years and I've been to Canada. And it's, it's interesting that that's not the same thing. I think it's a uniquely American mindset. Right. It has to do with Protestant culture that was brought back back in when the country was formed, and um, we still we still hold on to that. And it's a good thing for some things, but uh, when it comes to um, attitudes towards poor and poor being disproportionately black in this country, it complicates all. It complicates um, in-group, out-group relations and. Um, Racial, racial prejudice and this whole conversation on whether there should be support for certain groups of people or not, where should, we, where should there be support based on the skin color or not, and attitudes towards affirmative action, all, those thing, all of those things get wrapped up in um, those very, very basic um, values that we hold as Americans. And uh, the at the the need and the appreciation of hard work being one of the primary ones. 
Do you think there's ever a way to divorce the actual argument for either reforming welfare or reforming affirmative action without it getting into the the racial side of things? Or do you think that's what some politicians want? They don't want to have these discussions. Therefore, they always jump to it becoming a racial argument. So um, one thing that I think would be fair to bring up here is that our rhetoric, our framing and priming. So basically the way we discuss policies and a very specific um, words that we use when discuss policies do affect outcomes. For instance, when you talk about welfare in terms of government programs that assist poor and you never actually mention the world welfare programs, you get completely different outcomes and completely different reactions from people mm. from when you frame it in terms of welfare programs. Um, because welfare programs are stereotyped and it all it all just biases people right away. So I think one of the ways to carry on the conversation in policy in this country would be to sort of devoid it of partisan partisan framing, partisan priming, and sort of feelings and focus on the numbers for something like this that's heavily emotional, I think the the more the more prudent way would be just to become rational, you know, the homos economicus, the rational consumers, and talk about what would be the effects of certain programs and not frame them in terms of um, you know liberal versus conservatives or any sort of frames that are used in that discussion. I think another actually field like that is immigration, where framing, priming, and use of euphemisms is used quite a bit. And I will probably be talking about that in one of my videos in the future. But that one, that field was basically consumed with all sorts of euphemisms, like using the term anchor baby versus birthright citizenship, and illegal alien versus undocumented immigrant, which practically kind of mean the same thing, but used are but I use differently and develop completely different attitudes from the public. And that's not what should be that's not what should be the core of our policy solutions. The core of the policy solutions should be uh, whether it's beneficial for the people in the country economically, first and foremost. Um, yeah, that's what I think. I. I, I completely agree with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you do that video. I mean, to kind of touch on this topic, it, it, it's one of those things that, as you mentioned, why do we use certain terms? Why do we say certain things in order to elicit certain emotional reactions? It, it always reminded me of E-Verify, the system that employers, where we basically turned employers into police officers, basically saying you have to go ahead and verify their citizenship and their legal status and everything else before you do that. And if they're applying for this job and you find out that they're not able to work, you have to go ahead and report them. That that always, I mean, I, that always bothered me on a property rights issue because if you want to hire somebody who's willing to work the requirements and you agree upon a pay you should have the right to hire whoever the heck you want. I, I never saw that as an immigration thing, and I'm usually pretty more conservative on the immigration issue, but I've never liked the idea of E-Verify. But then, you know, look at who was 
who, who this was being really targeted at. E-Verify started primarily in border states. It started really in my uh, home state of Arizona. And it was because in the mid-2000s, you had a lot of, you know, strong, you know, pro-immigration uh, restrictionist conservatives. And you had a lot of pro-labor union Democrats who were really kind of shouting the same thing. We don't want cheap Mexican labor here because Mexicans are taking our jobs. E-Verify was really only something that existed in border states. It spread throughout the rest of the country, but it was really a border state thing to stop Mexicans from taking jobs that were meant for Americans, predominantly white Americans for that degree. That's what both Republicans and Democrats, at the end of the day, while they were speaking you know, across each other, that's what it was coming towards. And I'll never forget, there was a story by uh, Dr. Tom Palmer from the Cato Institute. He was having lunch with a friend of his from the UK who had been living in Scottsdale, Arizona for over a decade. And this is around the time of um, uh, when, when cops were basically pulling people over to check their IDs if they thought these people were potentially illegal immigrants. And this uh, British gentleman you know, when he was asked about how he felt about cops going around and checking people for their paperwork, he looked at him and he said, Tom, they're not looking for me. And in a way, he's certainly true because who, what were they doing? Why were they doing it? They were primarily targeting the Hispanic and Latin community. They weren't looking for illegal Canadians. They weren't looking for illegal French or Brits. They were looking for Mexicans. And while we could definitely have a conversation about you know, immigration reform and how to protect the civil rights of American citizens while at the same time being fair towards people who come into this country, even illegally, it, it always came down to who were they looking for. They weren't looking for the British guy. But um, but yeah, and uh, that that's just my tangent on that. What was what was the third experiment? The the last one mentioned. Sure. Uh, so the last experiment again had to deal with kids, and um, they got a bunch of uh, multiracial kids and um, adults, and um, they asked them what are the expectations of friendships of those multiracial kids, and. Um, you know, the, I guess the bigger finding, finding was that adults predicted that multiracial kids would mostly have black friends, whereas multiracial kids themselves predicted they will mostly have white friends. So that tells you something about, uh, how multiracial people see themselves, especially when they're children, um, versus how adults see them and pretty much what expectation is society putting on them, uh, adults being a representative of kind of the society, what expectations the society puts on them, yeah. What, why do you think there was just, why do you think there was such a disparity between who the kids opted to be friends with versus who the adults thought they would be friends with? Well, they didn't go into whys and uh, we kind of, and, and until until you actually get the proof, we don't really speculate on the whys in, in political science, uh, especially in this kind of realm of the experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, but I believe that as kids, those kids are probably seeing themselves as a part of a society 
And it depends on whether they grow up, grow up with. If they grow up in a predominantly white neighborhood, they see themselves as white, having white. Not they. They probably see themselves as for what they are, but they um they see they do assume that they could have white friends. And the culture that we live in is mostly white culture. So as being part of a society, they do assume. Oh yes, I guess most people are white. I'm gonna most mostly have white friends. Whereas adults um, probably see uh, society in terms of groups and in terms of interest, interest groups, in-group, out-group dynamic. And they would think that um, multiracial kids will mostly have black friends because they will be marginalized and they will be put in a group that's marginalized. So that's you my speculation it- on the issue. Again, uh, the researchers don't go into that. Got it. Got it. It, it almost seems like more of like a, 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 a nurture versus nature situation in that case. I, yes. And I think, I think that, that makes sense. Um, I think I'm, I am providing you with a plausible hypothesis on the matter because um, for kids, it's a lot more basic. They just report what they see around themselves, whereas adults are able to uh, compile more complicated notions. Um, and that's what they do. I, and I guess that that's a plausible hypothesis. Again, it's plausible that they would assume that because people of color, uh, are marginalized, they would be friends with others who are marginalized. And they do know, they do know objectively that there is prejudice against black people and people of color in this country. So they put them in the same group. I I can see that. It, It almost reminds me of, um, uh, it was it, it was a study done by some journalists. I, I saw it on Oprah like years ago. They were discussing how when you look at uh, foster families or families who are most likely to adopt children in the United States, it's predominantly white couples who are willing to adopt children. And when you look at the number of children who are adopted by white families in the United States, um, usually if it's, let's say, a, a, an orphan's black child or an orphan's Asian child, um, as they grow up, they tend to adopt the racial identity of their adopted parents in a way. So, and this, this, I, I, I had a problem with it because it almost felt too opinionated, less like an objective study, but she basically tried saying that this isn't good because you're eliminating the child's racial and cultural identity and you're replacing it with a white one. I saw that and I, I thought that was kind of stupid to a large degree because the child doesn't care. The child doesn't know. The child just wants to grow up being loved in a good family and live their life the way they want to. I never saw it as parents kind of pushing it on them, but they're only raising them the only way they know how. So I could definitely see how, you know, and this is all, this is all just a guess as we've discussed folks. It's more of a, where am I? How have I lived? Who am I living with situation? and everything else kind of taught afterwards, the older you get, which is why the adults in the situation, just, just my guess, have such a different opinion than the children growing up without understanding all these other factors. There's a popular, there's another seminal experiment um, with college kids, college kids in Ivy League, in a famous Ivy League school. Um, and I think they're they are intentionally disguising the name of the school they're doing the experiment in, but it's it's known. It's an Ivy League school, and it's college kids. So um, those were college kids of color, and they they found that um, uh, when placed in an Ivy League school uh, and going 
those kids, when they became part of a sorority that was based on their skin color, they became more aware of racial prejudice and stereotypes when they uh, when they were before. This is because those kids mostly grew up in either diverse or white neighborhood. And um, that happens a lot when you, uh, with uh, college kids of freshmen, kids of color in an Ivy League school. A lot of them would be from those more affluent parts, more affluent um, school districts, and they would be mostly multiracial or white. So those until they go to college, they're not even aware. They're not, I guess they're aware because they learn history, but they're not as aware uh, of prejudice and stereotypes against um, against uh, people of their skin color before they become immersed into an environment where they pretty much are forced to segregate or just hang out with somebody who looks like that. That's one reason why I've always felt like with a lot of our racial conversations, we're, we're ignoring a lot of the, the real issues. And this is just my opinion. Uh, people from both the left and the right have taken criticism to it, and I, I understand. But I've always felt like a lot of our racial issues aren't even really racial issues, but it's almost uh, a classist issue, to, to use that term vaguely. It's usually less about black and white, and it's more about poor and not poor. Because I, I mean, I, I always felt like if you if you wanted to really fix a lot of the racial inequality, you had to address why is there such an income or job inequality within certain communities. And I think in that experiment, when you look at just college campuses as an example, um, I mean, people I think are more likely to divert where they're going to spend more of their time or associate with more of who they want to based off people that are in the same socioeconomic class versus just who they identify with on a racial level. What, what do you think about that? This is true. And in the case with uh, Ivy League schools, at that point, kids are pretty much the same demographic. So they're the same, they're the same age, they're the same socioeconomic status, more or less. So then there's more kind of, uh, filtering, there's more ways of separating themselves or getting into a group. And that's when race becomes an, a significant variable. Uh, and this is very true that you're saying that this is a poor versus rich issue more so than black versus white. Uh, the issue, however, the kind of the, the, the deeper issue here is that blacks are disproportionately poor. And that's how it gets, that's why it gets complicated. That's why it becomes a yeah. racial issue. Just for that reason alone, the blacks are unfortunately disproportionately poor. And that's why this rich versus poor issue becomes black versus white uh, issue because whites are, most of the rich people, I would, I'm pretty sure are uh, uh, Caucasian. And then most poor people are black. Well, not most poor, but most- A good majority. Yeah, the good majority, I guess, if you divide people into, yeah, rich or white. So it becomes, it kind of by proxy becomes a uh, white versus black issue, although in the roots of it is the economic inequality. Very true. Well, Jen, we, we've covered a lot today, and I highly recommend that everyone listening should go ahead and check out the video and everything else that I'm going to include in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know my listeners definitely did too. If people want to follow your work on YouTube and everything else you're doing online, how could they do so? Sure. 
check out my YouTube channel, Think Tanker with Jen Sidorova and my Twitter at Jen underscore Sidorova and my Instagram. Instagram is the best, so we could be friends in the real life. Um, and yeah, um, I, it was great talking to you. It was great. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, folks, go ahead and follow her everywhere. You know how the internet works. As always, go ahead and check me out on Parlor. I'm just at Remso, R-E-M-S-O. If you see at Remso 2 pop up, message that person, call him a loser and subscribe to the show. Share this episode because I mean, the age of comfort, whether we want to admit it or not, comfort has to end so progress can be made. And if we're talking to each other, we're not screaming at each other. And I hope we can go ahead and discuss this more often. As always, I'm Remsen W. Martinez. You're listening to On the Run. I'll talk to you later. Good night. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.